Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. Uh, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by uh, John Elledge. Uh, hi, John. Hello, how are you doing? I am well uh, on this on this lovely Monday morning. Um, are you okay? You good? I'm good. It's uh, you know it's always a pleasure to be up bright and early on a Monday to tell the world about trains. So that's that's what I'm here for. Mm, that's a lovely segue into yeah what we are actually going to be talking about trains. Um, so John uh, is uh, probably the most interested in trains among the uk political commentariat i think that's a fair a fair assessment um <laughs> I, d- I don't actually think that's true you know oh really um, no i think like i'm kind of i i have a job where it was very um you know it, it was it was something that i was writing about a lot and but really my interest in trains is sort of a, a subcategory of my my interest in maps um, oh really? There are definitely um, um, journalists who you'll come across on Twitter who are far more into trains for trains' sake, like um, John Stone of the Independent or or Jim Waterson of the Guardian, who, despite having a, an objectively far more successful and impressive career than me, <laughs> there's clearly a part of him that wishes he'd been doing my job for the last five years. Of course, because um, he would just he, he just really loves trains and wants to be doing stuff about that. Um, but no, I, 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 I like a train. Trains are good. I think trains are better than the alternatives. But I, my, my, my partner Agnes once took me to the, the, the Railway Museum in York and mm. was far more excited about the trains than I was. It's like, well, I, I would just like to have a really good book of maps is kind of more my thing, to be honest. But anyway. So I realised we also didn't do introductions properly. Um, uh, John uh, is now the... Ex deputy editor for the New Statesman, correct? Ex assistant editor. Ex assistant editor, which is yeah, not not as highfalutin assistant as deputy. Yeah, no, I was I was at the New Statesman for for six years. I'm I'm still a columnist, um, and I'm still uh, editing City Metric, the sister site, on a part time basis, um, while while freelancing and working on a mysterious secret project. A mysterious secret project, but you're not you're not going to divulge any details. I mean, it's. No, probably not. Um, it, it, it's, it sounds far, it's far sexier and far more interesting to just be like, oh, it's very, it's very secret. Okay. Um, and then, you know, it's a way of whipping up interest, isn't it? Mm, mm. Is it HS2? It's not. No, I'm not building HS2. That's fair. It, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, it doesn't actually really involve transport that much. I've been told to, okay. to keep away from transport to a mm. large extent. Mm. Um, but no, it's, it's, it will be announced in due course. Again, that does provide a nice segue into what we're going to talk about today, which is transport policy in HS2. HS2 has finally been given the go-ahead by the government to um, complete construction. Uh, well, I suppose I had the go-ahead anyway, but the go-ahead to continue continue being built uh, last week as of time of recording, I think. HS2 was something which was very hotly contested um, across all areas of the political spectrum. You had some on the right saying that it was a waste of money. You had some on the left saying that it was um, going to cause environmental damage. Um, by building across the green belt and so forth. Um, but it's going ahead and we're going to have uh, an improved railway network uh, within the next um, couple of years completed. Um, I think that sounds a bit optimistic. Next couple of decades, perhaps. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> next couple of decades. By 2050, probably, there will be some new trains. <laughs> I think that, as I understand it, the current schedule, originally it was 2026. Mm-hmm. It's been pushed back i think to 2031 
Right, I see. Um, but that's only for the first phase. The second phase, which is the bit north of Birmingham, will be, if that happens, that'll be 2040. And these things tend to tend to slip anyway. So mm. it's it will probably happen in our lifetimes. But beyond that, I wouldn't get too excited. Well, that kind of, like, reveals a good other thing to talk about. That That's like... How capable is the British state of actually building, doing these massive infrastructure projects? The fact that HS2 is taking so long is already, um, it's already over budget and it's already been delayed. Doesn't really bode well for any kind of massive infrastructure plans like the bridge, the Boris Bridge, um, or any other kind of rail investments. You know, they said they want to reverse the beaching report, which doesn't really mean much in practice. I don't think. No, but. I mean they're. The, the the amount of money that's set aside for that is not really sort of uh, consummate with the ambition of of reversing beaching. Plus, you know, this is this is where my I'm not actually that into trains thing is really going to come out. A lot of beaching was probably not that was probably right. Okay. Um, in the like it closed a hell of a lot of lines, mm. but some of them were probably not sustainable in an era where where most people have cars. And okay, in the long term, maybe we're going to go back to an era where people don't have cars anymore. But, you know, at the moment, it is not obvious that every every small village in, in Norfolk needs its own railway line. Mm. Um, because they just won't get the they just won't get the usage. Mm. And actually something like buses would make would make more sense. Mm. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the sort of the, the length of time it takes to do infrastructure projects, I, I'm never sure what i think about this mm-hmm. i get turned around on it because on one level like it does seem to be quicker in certainly in countries like china where they don't yeah. have to worry about things like you know human rights or not killing people <laughs> on construction sites or, or whatever it may be 100%. but also it seems to be a lot quicker in, in say france mm-hmm. but then again if you look at the population distribution of france if you build a big railway line across france the odds are you're mostly going through farms and yeah. and you know that French French farmers love their farms, I'm sure, but they also like the large quantities of money they get for giving up the land. Mm. Um, whereas in in this country, just the the layout of the population means that most something ridiculous like sixty percent of the population in the UK lives in that kind of strip that runs from Kent up to Cheshire. Mm. Um, and and so like you're you're just going to be going past people's houses a lot more. Mm. So, so most people live in in a minority of the land. So, if you're talking about building a major infrastructure scheme, you're going to be going past a lot of people's houses. You're going to need to demolish stuff. You're going to be getting in the way of people's lives. Mm. Um, and so, it's there is an argument that actually, you know, property rights are quite important. It's good that people are being compensated for this stuff, but at the same time, you still need um, infrastructure projects to be as as good value as possible for the taxpayer so that sure. just inevitably makes it more more complicated than it would be if you're going through largely empty countryside mm. well i have an article open on my laptop which i need to read is that um hs2 is actually going over cemeteries right now it's an article in the new yorker the borries buried beneath boris johnson's new railway it is building over saint james's gardens um which was established in 1788 um, and currently is home to lots of bodies, uh, which are now having to be um, exhumed and dug up to make way for HS2, which I so- oh, sort of find quite fascinating. Cause it's, I mean, there's, 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 I, I occasionally hear arguments about cemeteries and use of public space and how they should be used for other things, but I guess this is something like that kind of action. Um, but you're using the example of France. Do you think... Um, 
sort of institutional memory of building infrastructure projects has something to do with it as well because france does have a bigger state than the uk i think is fair to say and france i suppose has actually maybe that's not as fair to say i was going to say how with the uk um undergoing the thatcher revolution and the complete rolling back of the state we haven't had any kind of like massive infrastructure building projects for several decades now and the fact and that fact then means getting to sort of relearn those skills takes longer i guess whereas maybe that isn't as true for other countries so maybe we just need to undergo a kind of learning curve yeah i mean one of the arguments for something like a national infrastructure commission Mm. is that you end up with this kind of rolling timetable of projects so you build up that institutional memory both in terms of the the state itself in terms of the kind of commissioning and and design of these projects but also in terms of the the construction sector mm. um, making sure that you have those professional skills so you don't have to buy them in from elsewhere like i remember a few years ago now i have no idea where we've got to in the debate around nuclear power it goes back at, you know we've been around that cycle about four times in my career i think at the moment mm. it's not talking about it but there was certainly a period where we were going to build more nuclear power stations or at least replace some of the ones that exist mm. but we literally do not know how in this country so it would have invo- involved basically paying the French state to build them for us because mm. they've been doing it for, for decades. They know what they're doing. Mm. So I think one of the arguments for a slightly bigger state that I don't think is made as often as it, as it could be is that actually you do need to retain that kind of memory of how you, how you do things. Um, and if the state is not, is not engaged in these projects and on fairly sort of, you know, rolling schedule, then then that ma- you, you lose that ability. All those people who can do that will be offered you know, high-paying consultancy jobs in Australia or something, and they <laughs> just will not be, will not be the institutional um, ability to do that anymore. And that does make things slower and more expensive. And I was just thinking, wh- while you were saying that, actually, um, it's probably not going to be politically possible, or uh, at least it's, it's going to be politically pen- potentially damaging in some quarters for Boris Johnson if they have to turn to a third party to build some of these infrastructure projects. If they had to turn to the French government being like, can you build us a nuclear power station? If they do have to turn to China to say, can you build HS2? Because that's completely at odds with the... Yeah, it's not very Brexit, is it? Yeah, exactly. That That's not, that's not Brexit. That's completely at odds with the notion of sovereignty. So almost by making this argument that we, we are independent and we're going to be doing things by ourselves it sort of disavows, politically disavows, any kind of asking for help. Yeah. Which could fuck us over. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I, think, <laughs> I think in practice, like, one of, the, one of the arguments to be made for Boris Johnson, I don't, I don't buy this one, but I take some comfort from it, is that because mm. he's, like, got... Because he's such an inveterate liar and everyone knows that, you know, you can't trust a bloody word he says to them, Mm. nothing he says will ever bind him to a particular course of action so mm. so so it is possible that just because he's ostensibly pursuing this you know britain stands alone policy that doesn't mean he won't be happy to turn to the french state or whoever when it mm. becomes politically useful um mm. but yeah that is that is difficult and it just feels like something we should it feels like the sort of thing that matters for a country we should have the ability to design and build these things in country, um, I mean, another another reason that something like HS2 is quite difficult is just a mm. more basic political thing, which is like the person who takes the flack for saying yes to it is not the person who will get the benefits. 
Mm. Like because they are so long term. I mean, Crossrail, which is which is still not open, it's due to open two or three years hence. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember ads, not ads. I remember pamphlets about that appearing at my local station, which would be one of those. Uh, my, my childhood local station, which would be one of those that's that's going to be served by the new route, when I was about twelve years old, mm. and I'm you know I'm nearly forty now. This has been going mm. for quite a while, and it's still Goodness. not running. If someone had just pushed really hard for Crossrail back in the early 1990s, they would have reaped all the kind of, you know, all, all, all the difficulties that building a, a project like this throw up in terms of the angry people who annoy the houses being demolished, all the disruption on the roads and to existing service mm. and so on. All that happens on the watch of the politician who agrees to it. But then some guy 20 or 30 years hence is the one who gets to cut the ribbon and get the kudos for it. Mm. I mean, on the most basic level, like Boris Johnson spent the first term of his mayoralty cutting the ribbon on a bunch of stuff that, that Ken Livingstone had agreed. Mm. Um, and that was quite short-term stuff, like something like mm. HS2, which is going to take 15 years to build, even if you do it really quickly. Mm. Um, it's, you're obviously looking at a couple of parliamentary terms since, so it's just the incentives are kind of a bit skewed. So mm. I can sort of mm. see why individual politicians are not always very brave about this, because it is not necessarily in their own personal interest to say yes. Mm. Yeah, I guess, well, that's like the one of the basic problems with democratic politics, isn't it? it if you have regular election cycles, then, you know, you, you do run into that kind of like short-termist mentality. Um, I guess that, that also explains why it can be really hard to persuade politicians to, to do things to tackle the climate crisis, but... Um, I mean, that's considerably more depressing. But. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and terrifying, yeah. And, but you, yeah. You're, not, you're not wrong, it's the same thing. Like, a politician who pushed really hard on, on you know, greening the economy now mm. might get an enormous amount of shit for, for the impacts that it will have on the economy yeah. or living standards in the short term, even if it's going to raise both those things in the long term, because they won't be around for the long term. So, yeah, I do sometimes worry that, like, short-termism is built into to politics in a way that is going to uh, get us all killed. But do you think that the fact that HS2 has been given the go-ahead does re- represent a possibility of, of success for, for not short-termism? Um, because if, if it hadn't been given the go-ahead, then I, I think that would remain unequivocally right. Like, ah, oh, yes, we're, we're, still, we're still stuck in these traditions. But the fact that... Boris Johnson presumably knows this. Presumably knows, like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have to get all the flack, and whoever is in office in 2042, um, 2052, um, is gonna reap all the credit. Um, but he decided to go ahead with that anyway. Yeah, I don't. I actually have difficulties reading that because, like, mm. he, he's also not exactly a brave politician a lot of time, is he? So I don't. No. I. I if you had asked me six months ago to put money on it, I would have guessed that he was going to kick it into the long grass again, at the very least. Yeah. Like, maybe not scrap it I was entirely. surprised. Um, but he's actually doing this thing, which, you know, I, I think it's not only good, I think it's vital. I think the railway network is at some point going to break if we don't have it. Mm. Um, or something, something very like it. But, but that is not going to be obvious in the five or ten years in which Boris Johnson is likely to be Prime Minister. So mm. I was... I was surprised that he has taken the more difficult decision because this is going to annoy a lot of people in, in, in it's going to annoy a lot of Shire Tories in the short term mm. um, maybe, maybe maybe I've been unfairly misreading him for decades who knows um, but I, I, think, <laughs> I think it's 
I really, I really don't have a good explanation for it because I mean, all I can think of is like it is, it is a, an important project that will benefit the nation in the long term. But it's that that doesn't seem to be something that's ever motivated him before. So I don't really know why why it's suddenly of interest. It is it is difficult. I mean, some, sometimes there are just things which politicians do which are really hard to read and hard to understand. I think the one the one which comes to mind for me is why the Tory MPs in their leadership contests decided to back Jeremy Hunt en masse as opposed to somebody like Rory Stewart. I don't think that made any sense whatsoever, but they did it nonetheless, and you just kind of have to figure out why they did it. Um, I mean, there is but, the... Um, you, you're a... You're a I can't remember what they call the degree course anymore, but you're doing the politics trapos, aren't you? Yes, um, yes, to my sins. Have you cut? Have you cut? Oh, this is more economics, but have you come across the greater fool theory? No, 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 it's, I've not. It's uh, something in economics which I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle this horribly, but basically, like, <laughs> you pay you pay for some you pay more for something you do not think it is worth. Sorry, you pay more for something than you think it is worth because you think other people will think it is worth even more. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So it's like, you know, um, which is how, how bubbles happen. You know, it's like, well, mm. obviously this, this tulip bulb is not objectively worth uh, a, a thousand of whatever the, the Dutch currency was in the 17th century. Sure. But I think that guy over there will pay me 2,000 for it in three days' time. So it is worth it on that basis. Um, and so, you know, bubbles, you can, you can obviously see the potential for kind of bubbles and, and, and crashes on the back of that. Mm. Um, I wonder if in the Tory leadership it was just a sort of thing like that. It's like, well, obviously I think Rory Stewart is a better... So this is me speaking as an imaginary Tory backbencher, by the way, not, not actually mm-hmm. saying this. I can imagine someone saying, obviously I think Rory Stewart is a better candidate than Jeremy Hunt, but enough of my colleagues are going to vote for Jeremy Hunt. There is no point wasting my vote on, on Stewart. Yeah. And it's kind of difficult getting, getting to that point of critical mass... Mm. Where where enough people are going to vote for someone that it seems worth worth making the sacrifice. I was just wondering because you do your um, podcast series where you walk around with the London mayoral candidates. Um, you walk around London with them. Are you have you walked around with Rory Stewart? Are you walking around with Rory Stewart? Um, in theory, we've got a date in the diary for end of next week. Um, oh, lovely! But as ever with these things, until they happen, you kind of can't be absolutely certain. Um, but I think probably the Rory Stewart one will happen. Mm. Um, Sean Bailey, the Tory, the official Tory candidate, I'm still chasing, um, but I sort of suspect it won't happen because um, I, I get the impression that most of the people around Sean Bailey, and possibly including Bailey himself, have realised that the less they kind of let him talk to journalists, the better it's going to go for them. I see. Um, yeah. um, and obviously, the the dream would be sort of a, a wander around tooting with Sadiq Khan, but I. <laughs> I need. I still need to pitch for that one. But, uh, He's a busy man. He is. Yeah, I think that one's a bit unlikely, but you never know your luck. Um, mm. But yeah, in theory, I'm meant to be out walking with with uh, Rory next week. I think around Newham Market. So, so watch this. Oh, space. amazing! Yeah. Are you uh, are you looking forward to it? Um, I mean, they're, they're actually the two I've already done were really fun. Um, mm. Like. Yeah, it's just kind of it's a slightly different. I mean, I'm not I'm not exactly Jeremy Paxman, am I? I'm not going to like go with a bunch of difficult questions. <laughs> um, like a, a friend of mine sent me DM a DM who works in sorry a friend of mine who works in international development sent me a DM with loads of suggested questions about his Orientalism or something. It's like I really just want to ask him about like transport and stuff like that and what he mm. did in London. Um, it's just I'm not, I'm the wrong kind of journalist to try and like 
nail someone over a, on 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 their terrible policies over a coffee in the market. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of it's kind of a nice format to kind of just get a sense of who someone is and what they're what they're about and what they what they see both the job of the mayor as and their campaigns achieving because like mm. the two I've already done were, were Siobhan Benita from the Lib Dems um, now off the Lib Dems once you know once ran a surprisingly successful independent campaign to be mayor in 2012 um, oh. and and Sean Berry who's uh, the co-leader of the Green Party and is the, the candidate mm. for the Greens this year mm. um, and both of whom are obviously sensible enough to, to, to know they're not they're not going to win like of course like Siobhan did do a, a put on a bit of a show of being like well there's a lot of Remainers in London and Stig's been disappointing it's like yeah but you, you know don't you I can tell you know um, <laughs> so the conversation was more about like what do you what are the issues you're trying to raise the profile of of course of course um, and what do you, you know, what do you think the mayor the mayoralty should be doing if it's not at the moment and it's kind of quite a nice sort of relaxed format to do that rather than kind of like a sort of something that's more like a hardline interview um, mm. So I guess one of the things I'd be interested in with Rory Stewart is basically saying, who do you think your voters are going to be? Mm. Because like London has not been fruitful ground for the Tories for a while now. Like mm -hmm. the last ten years, one of the one of the trends has been London very much slipping away from the Tory Party. Even when when Labour is in trouble in a lot of other places, it has solidified its hold on on London. And the last politically successful Tory politician was Boris Johnson. Yeah, the antithesis of Rory Stewart. Yeah, although not not necessarily at the time. I mean, you're going to remember like Boris Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in many ways the antithesis of Mayor Boris Johnson. Yeah, I suppose. Um, in that, like, he kind of did the whole sort of one nation liberalism, multiculturalism, wonderful London is open, hurrah routine. Yeah, when yeah. he was mayor. Um, and also, like, you can even say like one of the things he didn't really get behind as mayor was major infrastructure projects like he did a couple mm. of silly little ones like the garden bridge but he didn't do any sort of big planning until quite late on whereas now he's all about that so so you know god knows presumably sometime around june 2016 he was like kidnapped and replaced by a pod person or something but he's <laughs> yeah he's, he's very much not the politician now that he was when he was mayor I suppose Rory Stewart is a much easier politician to read. Yeah, it's sort of obvious which sense. strain of Toryism he thinks he represents, I suppose, is the way of putting it. Um, and also, like, when when Rory Mania was briefly think of, remember that? That was a weird time, wasn't it? I remember that. Yeah. I remember the videos, the Kew Gardens video. <laughs> yeah, but there were a lot of people on the, on the online left who was a delight, obviously, um, basically saying, yeah but, he's a, yeah, but he's a fucking Tory, isn't he? It's like... Yeah, I mean, he is. If you look at his policy positions, they are incredibly Tory. Like, he's been very, very pro-austerity. He has taken positions that I personally think have been incredibly damaging for this country. Mm -hmm. And yet, I can still kind of get past that to think to myself, if the Tory party was run by Rory Stewart-style Tories rather than Boris Johnson-style Tories, this country would be in less of a mess. Like, I think there mm -hmm. is kind of a... He does just seem like one nation in the most literal sense that he sees the, the job of politics as being to represent the nation rather than just a faction of the Conservative Party. Like, mm. one of the things that I always found most annoying about Theresa May is just the sense of her narrowness. Like, she had a very clear idea of, like, well, these are our people and the ones beyond them don't matter or are possibly actually yep. quite sinister. Like, yep. she... Do, she came across as someone who drew a lot of lines in her head between us and them. Yes. Um, 
red and lines. I, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think for different reasons, I think Boris Johnson has maybe done it out of political self-interest rather than uh, true belief. But I think he has found himself doing the same sort of thing. And he's now possibly trying to row back on that a bit, which we'll see. But like he, certainly during the Brexit process, he was very willing to kind of use that divisive rhetoric to to get us to a certain point. Um, Roy Stewart, I think, has you know, he has he has views I I completely disagree with, but I don't get the impression he is someone who does that. He is you know someone I think is is wrong rather than someone I think would see me as an enemy. If you see mm. the difference, mm. that's an interesting point about him being a sort of true representation of one nation Toryism. I think that's because the one nation, the most prominent one nation politician in your mind would typically go to is David Cameron. But in many ways, I don't think David Cameron was a one nation politician at all. Um, whereas I think, I think I would agree with you that Rory Stewart does seem more of a genuine. Um, espouser of that particular political philosophy whereas i think david cameron actually i don't really know how many political convictions david cameron holds i i suspect it's relatively few um but there we are i remember when when cameron first appeared on the scene private eyes to cover um there, there was a story around at the time about the first successful face transplant uh-huh um, so this was like 2004 this would time have been 2005. late 2005 early 2006 okay um, when you were presumably three years old or something. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but he like at the time, Private Eye did a cover um, under the headline, you know, first first face plant, sorry, a first face transplant operation, a success, and there's just a picture of Tony Blair next to one of David Cameron. <laughs> um, and that was very much how it how it felt at the time, or like how he was trying mm. to present himself as like the Tories equivalent of Blair, mm. like the man who was like drag an unwilling party back to the centre where it could win elections. I but you know, in in retrospect, having looked back on, on their whole careers, my sense is that Tony Blair sort of meant it. Like mm. like he really was from the kind of but like I don't buy the argument that he's 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 not Labour, but he was certainly the right of the Labour Party. Yeah. Um whereas like David Cameron, I think it was a more cynical political manoeuvre. It was about like how do we win? as opposed to what do I believe is right. Yes, yep, um, 100%. So, so I don't actually think we know what he believes or what he wanted. Like, I think it's kind of, kind of quite interesting that he, as soon as he lost the referendum, he quit. Like, within hours. And you can, mm. like, you can say, yeah, but he lost his authority, blah, blah, blah. You can have that, that argument, but nonetheless, that, that did not... It was interesting that he did not even think it was worth fighting to stay mm. or trying to sort of create any space for himself to stick around and do the next stage of the process and is that because he genuinely thought he'd lost his authority and it should be someone else or did he or, or was it just he thought well fuck this I'm off like why did I have to clean up this mess basically I mean much has much has been said about how um, public school and boarding school continues to influence the thinking and actions of david cameron as well as boris johnson um and i do think there is a certain um cavalier attitude towards things like these um which that is just most emblematic of um i was like fuck this i'm off it's not my problem to sort out anymore um and how how, how what i also find quite interesting is how 
both him and Boris Johnson appear to have made up um, over Brexit, but he hasn't made up with Michael Gove. Um, and you could say that Michael Gove is a closer friend, so it, it stung more. Um, but in reading about their, you know, sort of troop dating back to when they were all at university together in the 1980s, um, there, there was always this kind of persistent sense that Michael Gove was the odd one out anyway, by virtue of the fact that he didn't go to Eton or one of the classical English boarding schools. Um, and I think, I think that, 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 that cavalier attitude, that sense of like, um, looking after one's own, um, perhaps drives a lot of what he did i never know how seriously to take this kind of stuff about it being class i mean like okay everything in this in this hell side of a country is class um but like <laughs> I, I i'm never certain whether like you know all this stuff about you know although they, they always call Michael Gove oik or whatever is that is that real or is that being put around by people who don't like them because sure because it kind of fits with what we already think of them um, and again, like, I don't. Who, who, who knows? Maybe I'm being naive in, in suggesting that incredibly posh people don't talk about only marginally posh people as like I don't. Know. <laughs> um, but I, I think a lot of it. I think something that is often under discussed as a factor is that this stuff is personal a lot of the time. Yeah, like, I think it is possible that because Michael Gove was a much closer ally his betrayal hurt more, as you said. Like, it's, you know, okay, Boris Johnson is a backstabbing piece of shit that you can't trust further than you can throw him. He's always out for himself. Well, we already, we already knew that, right? So David That's Cameron already knew that as well. Whereas, yeah. like, Michael Gove had been one of his closest political allies from, you know, since before he, he became a leader, I think. Like, I mm. think when he was at the Times, I think Michael Gove was still kind of seen as, like, a, che- a part of that set. So, so obviously that's going to, to hurt a lot more. That's, you know, a, a political relationship of more than a decade. That's a friendship broken. Yeah. Rather yeah. than just, you know, well, this guy I never trusted anyway has been shit. So, so to maybe, maybe, maybe that's actually all you need. I think often people having these arguments on social media and in columns play up ideological factors and play down personal ones because the ideological ones are more visible. Yeah, definitely. You can sort of see where people sort of fit into their party along, you know, along a left or right line or whatever, um, and so and so it's kind of easier to read across that. But this is sort of an availability bias, isn't it? You don't necessarily know that these guys had a tiff in a in a pub in in 2012 or something, <laughs> and that they're still defining their entire relationship, or that one of them stole the other's girlfriend or something. You know, and, mm, and, and a mm. lot of you know Westminster is such a bubble that there's a lot of stuff like that that is going yeah. to be affecting personal relationships and therefore political ones for a very long time yeah that's why everyone should read haven't you heard by marie leconte uh, <laughs> yeah. um entirely about this topic has been on the podcast interviewed about this book uh, for regular listeners you'll probably remember that um when you when you were speaking there it reminded me of a line there's a line from the thick of it which is delivered comedically as everything is and i don't think it's intended to be a serious line Maybe it is, but it's always stuck with me as quite a, a, a nice, a nice bit of writing from Amando Iannucci, and it's um, it's when Hugh Abbott is being grilled by the selection committee, um, and he's trying to defend himself, and he kind of sort of flippantly goes like, "Well, if politics isn't personal, then what is it?" Um, and I think that's actually a remarkably, I think that's actually a very good line. 
And I think that's actually a very good sort of little political philosophy to sort of govern govern your political decision making. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's I I don't know if I would agree that it sort of needs to be a political philosophy, but I think it is a fact. Well, question. I think I think what I mean in the sense that so, okay, so I mean in the sense that we've been talking about of how politics is personal because the politicians are people and you need to you know manage interpersonal reactions and that kind of thing. But I also mean in the policy making sense that. Um, I think there are too many politicians who don't see politics as personal, who see politics as managerial and sort of abstract from people's lives, which is how you end up in situations like where you are promoting austerity and where you are promoting these cuts, because you don't connect in your mind that these have human ramifications, or maybe you do connect, but you don't care as much. Um, like back to Rory Stewart, I mean, like as much as he may be, he may be amiably. Uh, amiable and, and 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 lovely in person and um and certainly a, a nicer or better conservative than someone like boris johnson um i think that that disconnect still remains um with his brand of politics and there's still like if you were to go and ask a sort of like you know 2012 2013 era conservative mp like you know why you why you cut like if you were on welfare welfare recipient like why are you cutting my benefits and they'll they'd say like oh but you know it's because we need we need to get the economy back on track blah 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 and then they they may say like oh yeah but now i can't afford food every day and then what do you answer to that you know there isn't an answer to that because it totally goes against the rest of your political philosophy because you don't see politics as personal um yeah maybe that's one of the problems i think there is certainly a, a... I think you just get a sort of cognitive dissonance where, like, yeah. one of the reasons a lot of the Tories who back austerity and are not terrible people don't quite believe that poverty is a real problem is a sort of yeah. almost a sort of intellectual self-defence mechanism. It's like, well, yeah. I'm, I'm a good person. I would not, you know, do something that would literally sort of, like, endanger people's ability to feed themselves ergo these reports of, of the terrible effect of universal credit or whatever it may be must be must be fabricated oh yeah 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 in, in, I think that's definitely right yeah in the same way like i kind of think that one of the reasons tony blair is still doubling down on iraq like he still will not sort of budge an inch on, on whether or not maybe that was a little bit of a mistake in some way mm. um is because he he does have a moral code he do he was trying to do something good and so, like, if he, if he ever sort of admitted to himself, this didn't really go well, did it? This was probably a mistake. He will have hundreds of thousands of deaths on his conscience, and that will destroy mm -hmm. him. So obviously, he cannot do that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I. I think it's the same with Corbyn and anti-Semitism. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly a variant where it's like, well, obviously, I'm not a racist, therefore. I can't, I can't be an anti-Semite, therefore exactly. these people who are claiming I am must be shadowy forces um, conducting a sinister conspiracy of some yep. sort against the Labour Party, you know, at which point you, you've literally engaged in an anti-Semitic meme. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think it's a, very, it's a very similar thing. I mean, I think, I feel with Corbyn, the nature of the politician he had been, like, you know, always like speaking at protests or whatever meant that, you know, he's his own moral sense of his own politics was hugely important to him mm. like it wasn't just about well these are the positions i believe are, uh, will, will improve the country it's like no i believe there is an objective right and wrong about this 
and I'm in the right. Mm. Um, and therefore, like any suggestion that actually he may have been on the wrong wrong side of something, coming from from broadly his own side, must mean that those people were not in fact on his own side. Mm. Uh, so, so back to the supposed theme theme in quotation marks of this episode um of uh transport policy um we so we were talking earlier about the difficulty of actually building these infrastructure projects um actually delivering on them and short-termism do you think there are any short-term infrastructure development slash quick fixes which could be done uh that i suppose the government could adopt to electoral success or that the labor party could start talking about like you mentioned buses do you think do you think buses are actually an easier slash better investment um to be going forward with in the short term than than improving than just improving rail lines what what, what do you reckon um i mean yeah we certainly should talk more about buses in that like in railways to a certain extent a london phenomenon these days Mm. Um, in the, like some, the, I can't remember the figures, but something ridiculous like seventy percent of people who regularly use trains are using them to or from London. It's, yeah, I don't know if that's the number, but it's that sort of magnitude. Mm. Because because the London commuter network and the intercity network of which London was uh, at the heart are the two bits that survived beaching. Like there's not that there's nothing else left, but those are the two bits that were kind of left relatively unscathed. Mm. Um, but that was because they were well used and therefore relatively profitable. Um, so there is a kind of, you know, uh, if success begets success thing going on here. Like, if if there had been a very successful rail network around Manchester, a lot of people using to get to their office jobs in Manchester, that probably would have survived too. Uh, mm. but, it, but it wasn't really there, so they closed some of the lines and we got poor services and the ones that remain and so on and so on. Um, Buses, however, are, you know, buses are the main method of public transport in, in most of the country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, certainly if you, if you were sort of looking at what's a, a relatively good cost-benefit investment we could make in public transport, it probably would be buses because mm. they're relatively cheap to do. They're not very disruptive to put in. Like, you don't have to spend years building infrastructure for them to go on. Mm. Just a um, big car, really. Yeah, um, <laughs> basically, yeah, it's a bit, yeah. Um, uh, I, I'll, I'll remember that one. Um, but yeah, Why does my big car not simply eat all the other, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, but the difficulty is like, I mean, the Labour Party did have a plan, it's probably putting it too strongly, but they did have a, have a bus policy, didn't they? Yeah. And, and, you know, complete wankers like Dan Hodges were just ripping it to shreds. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe that Jeremy Corbyn is talking about buses. And mm. this is the this is the reaction you're going to get because like you know people who who live in North London and spend a lot of the time talking about what people in in the real Britain want as a way of sort of ventriloquising for their own awful opinions don't necessarily appreciate that buses are are far more valuable in in much yep. of the country um, and it's a, you know it's a change you could bring in relatively quickly like you could do it inside a parliamentary term i think because you don't need the infrastructure you just give councils the ability to start commissioning and designing their own bus networks again and the money to fund them um you know they can, they can still be provided by private companies but you do it on the sort of london model where we never deregulated buses where it's like private companies operate buses on behalf of transport for london and it means that you know 
popular routes are cross-subsidising unpopular but socially useful ones, mm-hmm. so that everyone gets a service. Basically, um, yeah. there is a, you know that that has worked very well in London, and that's partly because of population density, but it's partly also just because we didn't deregulate London in the 1980s when we de- when the Thatcher government deregulated the bus networks everywhere else. That is a thing that a government could do quite quickly. I think there are a couple of reasons it, it doesn't. One of which is that buses are just not very sexy. <laughs> like, mm. I mean, as you say, it's just a big car. But like, you know, if you're talking about building a train line, a lot of people will talk about the train line. A lot of them will be yeah. nerds, but there'll be a lot of people really interested and excited about it. You don't get bus nerds in the same way. Um, mm. Another is the, the fact that it's, you know, it would involve empowering councils, which to the first approximation, no government has wanted to do for decades. Like the direction mm. of travel has consistently been to remove power from councils. Even the local, even the, the local government devolution we're now seeing in England to an extent with mayoralties is to combined authorities, which are collections of councils, which are, you know, basically sit at a level above. Mm. No one is seriously talking about giving them the, the actual district council or borough council more power or more money. They are still mm. being undermined. And the third reason it doesn't happen is just that people will sneer. Yeah. It's just, yeah, like people in, in the Westminster bubble will be like, oh God, why are you talking about buses again rather than the real issues? Um, so, so there is... Even though, like, it should be something you can achieve relatively quickly with with a significant upside, it maybe doesn't feel like it. Like I was mm. talking, um, I was talking to Jim Williams of the Manchester Evening News, mm. um, who's an excellent um, journalist covering Manchester and North of England. Who you should follow on Twitter if you don't already. Um, for, mm. Anyway, I was talking to her for my my own podcast, Skylines, um, the other day about the fact that you know Greater Manchester has still not gone through with like the sort of the redesign of its bus network even though it was meant to have been given the powers to and she, and it just doesn't seem like Ali Burnham is that fussed about making it a priority and you know mm. that feels to me like that should be an obvious win for someone like Burnham but if he, mm. he doesn't think this is worth spending political capital on right now there is there are clearly you know there are clearly some reason why why politicians are just not not going for this easy win right yeah Hmm. Or maybe if Lisa Nandy becomes leader, we'll start hearing a lot more about buses. Well, I hear they're very big in towns, so. (laughs) And another episode of the Social Review Podcast comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you very much to John Elledge for coming on and talking to me about so many different things. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at John Elledge, just his name, uh, and as plugged, uh, you can go listen to his podcast, uh, Skylines, at all good podcast providers. Thanks again for listening. Uh, there will be more episodes coming very soon with lots more fun interviews, and have a good rest of your week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.